if everybody is making decisions in different ways, people are going to become very confused and some are going to become angry and we really can't afford that. We really don't need divisiveness when it comes to the vaccine. Welcome to the Rain Insights podcast on COVID-19. I'm Emily Donahue. The United States is poised for its worst COVID peak since the pandemic began. In this podcast, Rain founder David Lawrence, Dr. Bill Lang, and Dr. Fred Southwick discuss illness and hospitalization rates, details of the vaccine distribution plan, and how to stay safe if you're not in the first group to receive the vaccine. Let's listen in. Bill, Fred, once again, uh, thank you for spending some time with us and uh, providing an update in terms of where we are with the uh, with the virus and with the vaccine coming onto market. Uh, first things first, uh, we've spent a lot of time before Thanksgiving holiday talking about precautions and some of the concerns that both of you had about uh, the rate of infection uh, around the country. What's the data showing us right now? Well, just in time for Thanksgiving, the national level COVID curve uh, peaked off. Um, beginning of last week, the the or late the week before, it looks like it was the peak, um, and things have been coming coming down slightly, not not significantly, until the last couple of days, and where we've started to see a couple of upticks. Now, what happens through the weekend and into the early part of next week will really be telling as to what was the effect of Thanksgiving on COVID rates in the United States, and it'll be a very interesting comparison because. We've noticed that over the past, you know, the, the, the surge that was in Europe started about three weeks before the surge in the United States. And the surge in Europe peaked about three weeks before it appeared that we were peaking. If Europe keeps coming down and we have another surge that comes after Thanksgiving, that is going to be very indicative, not just for us, but for the whole world as to what the holidays can do. Because while Thanksgiving is a uniquely U.S. holiday, the Christmas, Hanukkah, other end-of-year holidays around the world are basically are almost universal. So if the U.S. Thanksgiving peak caused a, or Thanksgiving event caused a peak, that's going to be concerning for what happens with the end-of-year holidays worldwide. Yeah, David, the the models for infection spread show a very strong correlation between spread and mobility. And the fact that such a large number of people traveled and moved makes it highly likely that we're going to see an increase in cases very shortly. It's also very interesting. There was a very uh, nice correlation uh, by a group looking at the degree of restriction from a public health standpoint and the number of cases uh, per 100,000 new cases. And uh, so the higher the number of cases that would be on the vertical axis, the horizontal axis would be to the left, would be the lowest restriction, to the right would be the highest. Well, the one in the far right in the bottom, the lowest number of the cases and the greatest restriction was Hawaii. Uh, New York City was quite good as well, though it's, it's creeping up. On the far left, the highest number of cases with the least restriction are South Dakota, North Dakota, Iowa. 
and interesting. Uh, and you look, you can see it's actually a linear relationship. The less restriction, the more cases, and it's pretty much linear. Uh, however, there's one state that's off that it doesn't fit in the line, Florida. And it has a very low level restriction, yet its case numbers have been relatively low. And my hypothesis is that when you have warmer, humid weather, the aerosol doesn't spread as well. Now, we just had Thanksgiving and it became cool and dry in northern Florida. So I predict that Florida is going to get levels uh, approaching that of South Dakota and North Dakota as far as cases per 100,000 in the next week to two weeks. And I'm very, very worried for our state and the entire United States. I think it's going to get quite a bit worse than it is right now. Fred, I know you've in particular focused on hospital admissions and the capacity of hospitals to actually care for people uh, who have COVID-19. Any additional perspective on whether hospitals are being taxed and if so, where? Um, Yes, they are being taxed in most areas. Uh, Parts of southern Texas are overwhelmed. Oklahoma, I understand, is overwhelmed. South Dakota, North Dakota, uh, Iowa are all overwhelmed. Uh, So it's becoming a problem in in more and more states. Uh, Florida right now is, is stable, but we just saw in the last four or five days the number of admissions has tripled. So we were at a low level and it's moving up very, very quickly. Um, One of the strategies or or philosophies, particularly of our governor in Florida, is that um, as long as the ICU beds are vacant, he doesn't want to restrict as far as masks or others or social distancing or closing or partially closing businesses such as bars and other and restaurants until the ICU is full. I, I, we're very, I can tell you a number of physicians are very disturbed by this philosophy, this approach, and a number of areas now in the country, physicians and nurses are becoming increasingly frustrated with public that is not masking, that are not distancing, and are continuing to believe that the epidemic is not real. Fred, there was an article in the uh, Wall Street Journal that was addressing exactly that, that many hospitals, they feel like the they're seeing a war zone almost on a daily basis, not, not universally across the country, but in many areas. And yet when they leave the hospital, the people they interact with are, what, what's going on? I don't, I don't see anything. Everything looks good. Uh, people don't recognize that there are, there are still a lot of people having issues. Yes. Most people getting COVID-19 are doing just fine. But when you have a lot of people who are infected, you're going to have a lot of people who are sick. And that's what we're seeing. Exactly. The percent, I don't know, Bill, do you know the percent at this point? It keeps changing. Um, It was about, uh, of all those infected, it was about, I believe it was about 6% were ending up being hospitalized. But I don't know what it is now. well, well, that's it's it goes back to the definition of what's a case. But if you take symptomatic cases, 85% of symptomatic cases are mildly ill. About 15% of of symptomatic cases need to get medical assistance, and of that 15 of the 15%, about a third or six five to six percent total require hospitalization. That's been amazingly steady throughout the uh, epidemic, but. 
we've identified more people who are infected, but not really sick. So those people, these these very mildly ill or even asymptomatic people, that number has has grown substantially. But still, if you get symptomatic, about a 15% chance of needing hospitalization, about a six, uh, of needing medical care, about a 6% chance of needing hospitalization. That's been fairly consistent. I was going to say, apropos the points that both of you are making, I've listened very, very carefully uh, to NPR radio, which has been leading with the interviews of many of the hospital workers. And uh, you actually, um, until you hear their voices, and you sense their exhaustion and their frustration, as you said, Bill. Um, you can't really understand that, you know, while we're all in this one together, clearly we're not all in this in the same way together. And they are carrying a very, very heavy burden. And, you know, as you look at the statistics, I'll just, maybe I can get both of your comments on this. Because of the high degree of asymptomatic um, patients here, and you can talk a little bit about what age group and demographics for that. Uh, I think that there is an increasing, number one, exhaustion around this and the restrictions. I watched New York City on Saturday nights. You go out in the streets for Sunday brunch. You can just see that, um, you know, there's a, there are a number of people wearing masks, but there are also a number of people who are not, and there are clearly a lot of people who are not observing social distance. So how much... Um, do you think it plays into the fact that there there are so many people who are asymptomatic, um, who have been leading their lives, and nonetheless, um, you know, have not been infected to agree where they required hospital care? Well, you know, I think this is a huge problem. If it didn't happen to me, it didn't happen. And uh, I think we have to, we can't put our heads in the sand. We have to look and see uh, what's going on in our hospitals. One of the things that I wonder, and for those governors who are not restricting, I, I in fact, we're considering this in the state of Florida as a group, we're a group of Northern uh, Florida physicians. We're, we want to invite the governor to our ICU to see what's going on, because until you see it, you don't believe it. The other thing that I think has been very powerful has been interviews with various healthcare providers that NPR and, and MSNBC and a number of the stations have been airing. And what you see is you see nurses crying and saying, I never in my 20 years saw people die like this. And this is not what I got into medicine for. I don't want to usher sudden deaths and see the devastating consequences to families that caregivers are seeing. And this does create a tremendous emotional toll and is leading to burnout everywhere. And uh, it, it, the good news is we do have the vaccine, and there now is a light at the end of the tunnel. And I think that should be used as a method to encourage everyone just to buckle down for a little bit longer, you know, really follow those rules for a little bit longer until we have the vaccine, and then we'll be out of the woods. So, Fred, the uh, metaphor I heard, which I thought was a good one, we're in the ninth inning, don't blow the save. Yeah. I, no, I think that's good. I think one thing that is in our favor, maybe it's a small thing, maybe it's too small a thing, is that, as Fred said, mobility is very much tied to increasing case rates. Well, much of the mobility associated with Thanksgiving was the college kids were all coming home. 
normally after Thanksgiving, they go back to school and then they start trickling home over the course of December. That's not happening this year. They've all, they're home, they're done. So much of the big movement has already happened. The big question now is going to be, do people decide to you know, take their whole families and go to visit grandma and granddad um, or wherever else it may be? Um, and if we see a big jump in Thanksgiving um, and even talking to, to my patients, a lot of them are saying that if they see a big Thanksgiving jump, they're going to be less interested in traveling over Christmas. So I, I have a little bit of hope that we may have some mitigation of the uh, of the, the holiday excess in cases. Let's pivot to the good news, which is uh, both the results of the vaccine and its uh, introduction ahead of at least uh, some of the reported schedules that we had even a month or so ago. Can you guys give us uh, some perspective in terms of what people can expect uh, in terms of the rollout, the availability, the supply, administration, and um, what might be a reasonable timeline here? And obviously they've spoken about different populations receiving the vaccine at different times, sort of Maybe you can analyze the triage for us. Yeah, why don't you start on this one? <laughs> okay, so um, so a couple of a couple of things is it, it's look, the timeline that we're seeing, kind of the timeline that we know right now, is that there's the the two vaccines that, as you probably know, were actually authorized for emergency use, not approved, authorized for emergency use in the United Kingdom. And in the UK, they think that they'll be ready to start actually immunizing people probably the week after next. In the United States, both of these vaccines have been submitted for emergency use authorization to the uh, FDA. And the FDA has scheduled committee meetings on them for next Thursday for the Pfizer vaccine and the following Thursday for the Moderna vaccine. And the guidance that we're hearing from, not directly from the FDA, but from the Surgeon General, was that his understanding is that FDA approval will come approximately 24 to 48 hours, or generally over the weekend, um, following those hearings, unless there's some um, information that none of us have heard about. If that's the case, because both supplies of both vaccines have already been distributed to the states or are right now in the process of being distributed to the states, uh, the initial needles and arms will happen somewhere around the 15th of, um, of December, so less than two weeks from now, for the Pfizer vaccine and then exactly a week later for the Moderna vaccine. Um, over the past three to four weeks, the logistics um, train for all of this that's been coordinated by the Army, but with very, very heavy involvement from the major logistics companies in the United States, including uh, FedEx, including UPS, including including the Postal Service to some extent, and as well as many trucking, um, major logistics trucking companies have been working through both mock exercises as well as now they're actually moving real product around to state level staging areas. And then the final decisions on prioritization will be made at the state level, and then the states will be responsible for doing for directing at least that if you want to call it the last mile distribution from state level distribution centers to the individual places will where vaccines will be given. With regards to uh, the prioritization of immunization, 
uh, the CDC, or I, yes, it was the CDC, uh, did come up with a priority, and and I agreed with their priority, and that was that first it'd be frontline uh, healthcare providers, followed by those that are in nursing homes, those that work in nursing homes, and those are are in these confined areas where the the mortality, the major forty percent of mortality is in the in those nursing homes, and that this would be this will maintain our workforce and reduce the risk in our most vulnerable populations. So I think that is the right approach. Now, I understand, I think in Great Britain, they're going to, their first is going to be to vaccinate the uh, nursing homes and those working in nursing homes, and then subsequently healthcare providers. I think our order is the opposite, but uh, I think they're going to be able to get to both uh, very, very quickly. Right. In the, in the U.S., the total numbers of both both of those categories is it depends on how you count a frontline health worker. But the total number for both of those categories runs runs at about 15 to 17 million people. Um, we're going to have more than that amount of vaccine that is supposed to be available uh, by the end of the year. So and remember, they've got to have two doses of uh, of vaccine, but there should everything we're hearing, there should be enough vaccine to have priority one um, pretty much immunized by the end. Or realistically, it'll probably be shortly into the uh, beginning of January to get this first priority done. And then we move into priority two, which is other elderly and at risk people. Um, that's a larger group and a much harder to define group. Yeah, and I think another important group, and um, there are the, the essential workers, and this group needs, I think, needs to be focused on fairly early as well, because that's the other group that's had a high infection rate, uh, because they are actually physically out in the environment, and they are by their job requires that they be mobile. So with that increased mobility, they are at increased risk, and also that that group tends to have larger, uh, smaller houses and more crowding, which increases their risk. So I, I think that that's, and I'm not sure where they fall in, on the priority list at this yeah. point, Bill. What's what's very interesting is that the um, uh, National Academies group that did the prioritization were relatively silent. They were mentioned, but they weren't specifically put in there as a group. The four priorities that they had were the nursing home frontline workers, then other elderly and at-risk people, then other adults, and then children. Um, the essential workers will clearly, uh, several states, including New York and Illinois and California, have already said that essential workers are going to be right after the elderly and other, and other at-risk, and probably before all other adults, so kind of a priority 2A. Um, but that's where the politics, unfortunately, is going to come in, because who actually is an essential worker in in many, uh, many states, because it's a listed at the state level. Essential workers include financial industry. So that includes banking, um, includes the markets, those who make make markets and execute orders, all, all those types of things. Um, that's going to be where all these various essential workers, linemen for uh, for power, um, sewer workers, water workers, all those types of people who exactly gets thrown into that group is going to be a lot of politics at the state level. 
and then we'll get into priority three, the other adults. That's all, all the rest of, of everybody. Some states have announced that they're going to do the other adults on in a reverse age order. So after those over 65, then they'll drop down to 55 to 65, then 45 to, to 60, 55, and, and so on, until sometime in late spring, uh, we've completed the other adult uh, pot priority. And then the last one is children. And if you've already ad addressed all of the at-risk and all of the adults, children are actually, even though everyone says always, you know, you've got to think about the children. Well, in this case, the children are at such low risk themselves. The issue with children has always been uh, what is their effect on infecting other at-risk people, especially grandma and granddad generically. So I'm thinking that they're, that they're going to, children will probably wait until we get into a near fall, a late summer as the kids are getting ready to go back to school, including maybe even the programs being done as part of rematriculating into school. Well, both of you raised a couple of important points. I'd just like to flesh out in the remaining minutes that we have. Uh, number one, uh, the importance of information and transparency in terms of what, what the schedule looks like and what decisions are being made. But there's yet to be an explanation to people about what they realistically can expect in terms of the rollout and then the availability to them personally, to their colleagues, their children, their family, their dependents, their, you know, their, the senior members of their family, etc. Uh, I'll give you from Ground Zero in New York, uh, both CVS and Walgreens in a variety of places have posted prominent signs on their doors to tell people the vaccine is not yet available. Now, you wouldn't have thought it was necessary to do that, but they had plenty of people who were coming in looking for that vaccine. Hence, uh, the signs are up there. Yeah, I, I think this is very important. And one thing in, in thinking about this, uh, we could make a very clear decisions on who gets it first by looking at uh, various uh, um, job descriptions and the uh, level of, of positivity in those jobs. That would be a very objective way of defining it. And it might be different in different states. But if, if you use, I think we should use data to actually decide. And uh, the criteria should be uh, how many are hospitalized and get severe disease in each population and then uh, the positivity rate in different job uh, groups would be another important criteria. For example, you know, as someone who use, works in the banking industry probably was able to work at home and stay isolated. Therefore, the, uh, the level of infection in that group, the prevalence of infection would be very, very low. So based on that objective criteria, they would fall back in the line as compared to someone working in a grocery store where they're coming in contact with people all the time and where there is a modestly high uh, prevalence of disease. From the very beginning of this, um, I actually, I remember back to the first, uh, the first message that I put together for my own patients. 
and they sent out. I said that the most important thing that you can do as an organization, and it applies even to government, is to ensure that you have a good mechanism of getting the information out. People need to hear or want to hear or hungry to hear good, clean information. And that's always the hardest. Fortunately, I have heard, I don't, I don't, haven't seen the budget, but that there was a significant proportion of the warp speed project that was dedicated to a marketing um, plan to be rolled out as the approvals were made. So hopefully we'll see more on that coming. Um, I'm a little disappointed um, that we haven't seen anything yet marketing from the at the federal level as to just even the generic of, of the vaccines coming. Here's the basics. Uh, part of that is because the federal government has said, which is consistent with the Constitution, but it is very difficult for people to understand, but they have said that this is a state-level management issue. You know, there are strengths and weaknesses of that. Yes, the states are very good at executing, but when you have different states doing different things, especially in a dense area like the Northeast, there's going to be a lot of, uh, lot of problem for miscommunication, differences in communication, especially if the federal government doesn't step up and have a, come an overlay on the communications plan for everybody. Yeah, I agree with Bill. It's really important to have a consistent, uniform message and uniform criteria as much as possible. Um, if everybody is making decisions in different ways, uh, people are going to become very confused and, and some are going to become angry and and we really can't afford that. We've had enough divisiveness over the last four years. We really don't need divisiveness when it comes to the vaccine. And it's really, I think this is going to be really, really critical. The other question that I keep getting is, is this vaccine safe? And I'm not the expert on that. You're much more the expert on that than I. But but everything I have seen, I have, I have a, a fair amount of confidence in the two mRNA vaccines that we are seeing first, that their safety profile is actually is actually looking very good. Yeah, Bill, I would agree. I actually heard a talk by one of the scientists who is on the advisory board for the WHO that just gave a, had a position piece a viewpoint in the New England Journal today. And he, he so far, one of the worries was, well, uh, as after you get vaccinated, if you get reinfected, will you get a hyper immune response to when you get re-exposed? And so far, there's been no evidence for that. And so far, there's no evidence of any serious side effect. But as in all treatments, until we have a larger experience, we can't say definitively that there are no side of no serious side effects. That will take time. But Based on the trials so far, there is nothing uh, very significant to worry about. All right. So as both of you have pointed out in uh, prior podcasts, there's a biological aspect to uh, COVID-19 and very much a behavioral. And uh, people having confidence uh, in this and uh, obviously a lot of work needs to be done to make sure that people get the right information little editorial note, I don't think it helps, and this is, I'm not pointing to any individuals in particular, but I know you both have uh, shaken your heads uh, when you see various leaders who had been otherwise advocating um, the wearing of masks, social distancing, 
they're outed in public as uh, not walking the talk. And you've shaken your heads with uh, various leaders who have belittled these measures only to come down with the infection themselves. As a last point, just in closing, and Bill, I think you were just touching upon it, the fact that this vaccine um, has so far in tests proven to be very effective. What does that mean? And Fred, do we yet know whether the vaccine is effective in stopping the transmission of the disease, or is it just effective in uh, essentially neutralizing it inside uh, inside of uh, the people who are inoculated? The fact that this vaccine, the two uh, leading candidates are over 90% efficacy, that is they protect over 90% of individuals who receive that from getting significant infection is really good news because when you look at the, when a vaccine is that effective, you don't need to vaccinate as large a number to achieve sufficient herd immunity. And uh, it, he estimated that with that 90%, um, that we uh, 60% of individuals would need to be vaccinated to actually break the epidemic. By uh, eliminating individuals from getting infected, they will not spread it because they don't have significant infection. So what you're doing is you're preventing them from getting symptomatic disease. You're also reducing the amount of virus that they will have in their body so they cannot spread it. We need 60% of people to take the vaccine to break this epidemic, to, to eliminate it. What should we be looking at in the coming weeks? I think the big thing to look at in terms of rates is the, for the first few days of next, next week, what do the rates look like in the United States? That's going to give the whole world an indication on the, the holiday effect. Uh, I think that's an important thing to look at. And then the next one is just going to be the the approval on the vaccines. Is everything happening as planned? And if so, then we can really start drawing timelines as to as to where we're going to be when. I, I agree with Bill. Those are the keys. And and I, I'm very fearful we're going to have a, see a pretty uh, steep rise in, in the next week. But let's hope not. But I, I predict it will be. And, and the key is, uh, and Bill's an expert on this, supply chains, uh, effective supply chains. And the good news, I wasn't aware of that, Bill, that so many companies are involved in logistics who are uh, very uh, experts at supply chain management. And that is going to be the key, getting the vaccine to the places where it's needed and getting it, uh, people uh, uh, vaccinated quickly and effectively. Well, and that's one of the reasons why the Army, as opposed to the National Guard, it was actually the Army involved in this, is because the Army today is, is a logistics manager, not a logistics provider. They work on how do you bring the private sector to bear to get things where you to get things acquired, manufactured, distributed. Um, and that's where the that's so the Army is using the private sector and be playing the role of the, the interagency, interorganization coordinator for all that. I'll also uh, remind everyone, and I know uh, you you have focused on this, but some terrific companies such as uh, Walmart and Amazon and FedEx and uh, UPS and uh, some of the leading drug chain are 
some of the best logistical experts uh, in the world. And we shouldn't also discount the extraordinary effort throughout this crisis of members of the U.S. Postal Service who showed up every day, and I know they're playing a role in the distribution of the vaccine as well. So thanks again, Fred. Bill, thank you. Thank you, David. Take care. Fred Southwick is an infectious disease specialist at the University of Florida College of Medicine. Bill Lang is an expert in public health responses to biological incidents, including pandemics. Individuals and organizations turn to RAIN for risk intelligence that cuts through the hype to focus on what they need to know, what to expect, and what to do. If you like what you heard today and would like to know more about RAIN and how we can help you and your business stay ahead of risk, visit rainnetwork.com slash join. That's R-A-N-E network.com slash join. I'm Emily Donahue. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.